Well, today uh, we continue our look at heaven. If you were uh, with us last week, uh, we answered uh, the question, what will not be in heaven? And looked through Revelation 21 and saw those things, some of them, which will not be in heaven. And I said this week, we're going to take it from the opposite point of view. We're going to look and see what will be in heaven. And uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, it strikes me that uh, heaven is one of those things that people, uh, human beings, tend to think about whether they are part of a church or not. Uh, we see it kind of just in the cultural mindset that heaven is something that people speculate about, write cartoons about. Um, I was reminded of this because I came across a feature in uh, the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's one of those, they have these parts where they, it's supposed to be humorous, whether you find it humorous or not, we'll see, but um, it's written by this guy named Jay Martell, and uh, the idea is that um, there are Yelp reviews of heaven, and so he lists the, uh, the one-star reviews of heaven. These are people who've been to heaven and, and were not that impressed, so some of them are uh, humorous. We'll see if you think that's true. Uh, here's one of them. Uh, one star for heaven, not a fan of the pearly white color scheme, is what one person might say. See, it's not, not that funny. It's a little bit... Um, uh, another one is this, uh, one star for heaven, because I really wanted condor wings, and apparently didn't get it. Uh, okay, but there are some that are a little more insightful. This one, I think, reveals the uh, universal skepticism about heaven. One star, <clears throat> I feel kind of bad about the one star, but I guess it was just way overhyped to me. And then I got here, and I took one look at the clouds and the angels and everyone in white gowns and thought, really? It's such a cliche. Which, if that's what heaven is like, you could understand that response, it also shows the impression that people tend to have uh, of heaven. This last one, though, I think gets to uh, maybe even some of the things that resonate in our own hearts, and it's simply this. One star for heaven, uh, the reason, it's really, really boring. Trust me, no one wants to feel good all of the time, which is interesting, because that may, in fact, be a bit of a nagging uh, concern or wonder that you have. Is heaven actually going to be kind of, kind of boring? Because I don't know about you, but uh, the things in this life that people uh, tell me are going to be fantastic and amazing, like if someone's really building something up, up I usually brace myself to be uh, underwhelmed. Because usually people overhype the things, and then you go there, and it's, it's not that uh, fantastic. Uh, it reminds me of this, this essay that uh, David Foster Wallace wrote. He's this kind of cultural, was this cultural commentator, and he got an assignment to go on a cruise, a seven-day Caribbean cruise, and to write an article for a magazine, and I'll just give you his title. It tells you most of what he thought of it. His title was this, A Supposedly Fun Thing I Will Never Do Again. <laughs> that, that was his view of cruising. So if some of you like cruising, uh, fair enough, but what he found is that he came and initially was, you know, thought it was great, but by the end of the week, he felt like it was fairly uh, overhyped. In fact, the hype of the cruise was, was part of the problem. And I wonder if we think that heaven might be kind of like that. Like, at first it's great, but after 100 years, after 1,000 years, we start to think, you know, I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of feeling good all the time. So today we are going to look at heaven, and I'm going to tell you uh, right from the outset that we are going to double down, I'm going to double down on the idea of heaven as being a perfect unsurpassed, glorious, fantastic experience that will blow our minds away every day. I'm going to say right at the front end that heaven uh, has never been overhyped. That in fact, probably the problem that most of us have is 
our expectations for heaven are far too low, which is a problem. Because a weak view of heaven uh, can actually weaken our faith. What we need is a robust, a biblical view of heaven, one that fills us with hope and encouragement in the difficulties and challenges of our life right now. One that is an actual reflection of God because if, if God made heaven and heaven is underwhelming, that, that's a problem for us who have faith in God. So again, our key question for today is going to be what will be in heaven? Uh, there's a lot of things, but we're going to focus on four. And here's the first one. In heaven, there will be physical things. Physical things. We mentioned this last week. But it bears thinking about it in more detail because obviously from that New Yorker thing, many people inside and outside the church really see heaven in very spiritual terms with clouds and, and floating all over the place. And some of that could be because when we read through the Bible, there are some glimpses of the kingdom of heaven and they do tend to be very ethereal, very spiritual. Think of Isaiah when he gets a glimpse of the throne room of God and there's, there's just this, this light, this blinding light and these heavenly creatures crying, holy, holy, holy. And it's a beautiful and wonderful picture of, of the glories of God. And for us to imagine being in that, in that space is just overwhelming. But I think it's also difficult to imagine living there for eternity. It seems so unfamiliar. So it's very important that we remember that it will not just be a new heaven, it will also be a new earth. Uh, look at Revelation 21.1, just to remind us. John sees the vision. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So it's not just going to be a spiritual reality, it is going to be a physical reality. It's going to be together, and we should also remember these words from Jesus. In verse 5, he tells us, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice he does not say, I am making all new things. See the difference? He's not going to scrap this planet and this reality and start over again. We should think of this like an extensive renovation. If you're doing home renovations, if I told you I'm renovating my house, uh, and you'd been to my house, you would expect to come back when it's all been renovated and find everything new but still familiar. Like you'd walk in and say, wow, this is the same house. Maybe a wall's been moved, but all new floors, new carpets, new appliances. This, this is fantastic. This is new, but I recognize it. That's a different thing than tearing down the house and building a Walmart. That's not better, I would say. It, it, it's unfamiliar. It's not the same. But in fact, what we see here in heaven is that things will be familiar although they will be new. So think in your mind, the ecosystems that we're used to, the natural environment that we're used to, the, the birds, the plants, the animals, we're, we're going to see in a moment, the rivers, trees, the things that are very familiar are all there, but they're, they're made perfect. We are going to be made perfect. We're going to have a physical resurrected body. We're going to talk more about that next week because that really bears some thinking about but the truth of the matter is that this will be a physically, physical place, uh, a perfect reality. And it does help us to answer the question, the nagging question of will heaven be boring? Because another way to ask that really is, is do we think that God is boring? There are some people who, who might not say yes, but they imply it. Like I've heard people uh, who've grown up in the church and they'll say things like, you know, I never was really that excited about heaven because I got the impression heaven would be like church and church was pretty boring. I mean, it is. I mean, not this church, right? This church is great, but other churches, very, very boring. 
So if that's our sense, though, that look, the things of God are boring, God is kind of boring, then of course we wouldn't be excited about heaven. But if we think that way, we, we have missed something that is so obvious that when I say it, you'll be like, oh no, I, I, I know that. And the thing that's so obvious is, look, God, he invented fun, right? We know that, don't we? If you believe in the God of the Bible, then you must admit that God invented fun. He, he created a universe with all of the pleasures in it. He wove those into the fabric of our experience. He, he made a world with pleasurable things. He made our bodies with a sensory system so that we could enjoy the things around us. He invented pleasure. Just, just think about it. Everything that you enjoy, a great meal is, is pleasurable, is enjoyable because of the way that God made our taste buds and our, and our body and because of the, the things he made, things taste so good on this planet that when we put it in our mouth, we think, man, that's fantastic. All of the hikes that we enjoy, all of the explorations in our world that we enjoy, watching a sunrise, playing video games, all of the overstimulation that we seem to enjoy, all of that is because of, of who God is, that he made the world that way, he made our bodies that way, just think of an immensely satisfying sleep where you wake up and you're so rested, so refreshed. Think likewise of a night without any sleep because it's your honeymoon night. All of those pleasures are from the hand of God. He made them all. That is who God is. Now think of this. All of the pleasures that we enjoy are but a fraction of what it will be like in heaven. Because here and now, everything that we enjoy is hindered because of the corruption of the world. Like, like, think of something that you enjoy. For, for example, I really enjoy mountain biking. I've enjoyed it since in my teen years. I enjoy mountain biking, but my enjoyment of it, if I really think about it, is, is quite limited for lots of reasons because of the nature of my reality. For one thing, I hardly have time for it anymore because there's other things in this world that need to be done before mountain biking. My resources are limited, so instead of you know, riding a $9,000 bike, I, I ride my old bike. That, there's a limitation there. Obviously, my physical shape is limiting me a lot. That's just the nature of, of being 42. That's the way it works. But also, even things like the trails that I ride. I can't ride all of the most amazing trails. They're not close to my house. Even my riding partners. I mean, I ride with my children, and frankly, they can't keep up to me. I'm so, so James is so slow. That's not true <laughs> at all. But we're limited. If you think about anything that you enjoy, we're limited. And so... If we take that and extrapolate it to the perfect reality, the physical reality of heaven, we will recognize, we should recognize of how wondrous a reality it will be. Especially because we will do everything for the glory of God. As we experience those things, we will genuinely worship the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord who made these things. So when you think of heaven, don't think of the cliche ideas of the world. Think of it biblically. Think of all the intense, satisfying pleasures that you've experienced here on earth and think to yourself, they are like those uh, frustratingly small appetizers that you get at cocktail parties that taste good, but then you're like, I want more of that. I want the meal. Heaven is the meal. Heaven is us for all of eternity being satisfied with all of the sensations that God has designed us to enjoy. First and foremost, um, it, is a, it is an enjoyable place, enjoyable reality, because partly it's, it's physical. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, second thing that we um, find in heaven is that there's culture. There's culture in heaven. And by that, I mean cultural, creative expression. One of the other things I think that might make us not that excited about heaven is, is the sense that it's going to be kind of bland, that it's going to be all the same 
We all apparently have to wear white. We're all kind of doing the same thing. And a lot of the enjoyment we have in this world is us having some sense of individual expression, creativity, uh, personality. We should recognize that, in fact, there's a lot of evidence in the biblical text that the human culture will continue. In fact, cultures, plural, will continue. Uh, for one thing, notice the fact that um, heaven is described primarily as a city, not a garden, which is interesting. A city, and cities uh, tend to be the hubs of human culture. Now, on earth, that's mostly gone horribly wrong. Think of Babylon, think of Sodom, think of Las Vegas, think of it mostly glorifies humanity, glorifies sin. But that will pass away, not to say that cities themselves will pass away, but that type of city, that type of heart. And in fact, cities will remain, and the greatest one of them will be the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is the city that human beings have always longed for. Uh, look at Hebrews 10. This is talking about Abraham, way back Abraham in Genesis, and his longing. Uh, Hebrews 10, uh, verse 9 says, by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, Abraham went, he followed wherever God led, but he was really longing for this, this place, this, this city that God had built. We all, in a sense, I think have been longing for it. Think of all the human civilizations. We, we try to build, we try to orchestrate, organize a perfect community, civilization. It always falls apart. But in heaven, we have this image of this perfect, uh, splendid city. And it's described in, in a lot of detail. We're going to read it all. Um, so uh, it, you either read along with me. This is Revelation 21, verses 9 to 21. And just think about the image that's being described and the meaning behind it. That's what we really want to get to. So here's the vision that John has given of the new Jerusalem. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Whew! That is a city. That is an amazing image. 
And before you start trying to figure out how they can make a gate out of a single pearl, uh, which, which could very well be the case, but we need to recognize that there are definitely uh, some aspects of this that are symbolic. Uh, we see evidence of that because there are these names. These names inscribed on the gates, on the foundations. They're the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, showing a connection to the redemptive history of God's people now coming to fruition in the city. The shape of the city, perfect cube. That 1,200 uh, stadia um, is like 1,300 miles. So to think that it would actually be 1,300 miles tall seems outlandish. It could be. But the intent definitely seems to be the, the, the image of a perfect cube, which Norm uh, highlighted for us is what was at the center of the temple. And so later on, we find out there is no temple because where people came to meet with God in the center of the temple, now that is the whole of the city. That is the whole reality of heaven. It's a beautiful picture. Notice also that the city is both a place and a people. In verse 9, uh, the angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then takes John and shows him a city. Which sounds strange, except that is how we talk about cities these days. In fact, Israel in the Bible is talked about as a place and a people. So the, the overall picture that we should get is this resplendent, perfect, precious image of this city, this, this community of faith, where everything is orchestrated and designed perfectly for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying Jesus. That's the purpose of the city. That's the wonder of this city. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we're only going to sing in the city. Sometimes we have the impression that, that to truly worship is means we're just going to sing for all of eternity. We definitely will sing. Revelation chapter 5 has a new song that has been written and sung about the Lamb. We definitely will have lots of time to worship and sing and, and glorify Jesus but we're told in the Bible that, in fact, our whole lives is that which worships God and that we should have our lives as a living sacrifice. And so the image that really we should get about this city is that it will be an opportunity for us to express ourselves fully and completely to glorify Jesus in the way that we live. And it's interesting because in the next couple of verses, we see that there are actually uh, there's actually other pockets of civilization that, that come into the city and go out. So let me read you these next few verses. Uh, we actually saw these last week, but we're going to highlight some different parts of it. So here's how it continues, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. We looked at that last week. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations, plural, walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So the idea that we should have there of, of nations is that there will be different types of people, different groups of people. And that there are leaders that, that are bringing the nations into the city of God, bringing their honor and glory by which we could see their wealth, their cultural artifacts, their artistic creations, whatever it is, to glorify Jesus to come together and to worship fully from the different places on this new earth that has been recreated. So the image we should have is that of what human civilization should be like. Instead of all the warring, instead of all the division, instead of all the protectionism, there are distinct people groups, but they're intermingled, they're working together. They're, they're flourishing in the way that God originally intended. So 
this has some implications for how we should envision our life in eternity. Because we shouldn't just think of our lives in heaven like an extended club med vacation. It's not like we're going to just lie around on a ruby eating grapes. It's not just a life of leisure and relaxation. Certainly we will be at peace. Certainly we will be at rest. But it's not just that because God has so much more for us. Our greatest fulfillment in life is not just to relax, not just to have a vacation. Our greatest fulfillment, even in this life, is to serve the Lord, is to work for the glory of God. In fact, uh, that's what we saw at the creation, at the time of Adam and Eve, that they were made in a perfect setting. They were perfect. And God said, not go and relax. He said, go and work. Go and cultivate the garden. Go and use all your creativity, all your ingenuity, and bring about a flourishing of this place. There's a theologian named Anthony Hokma who wrote an article that I think captures the essence of this. Here's the title of his article. It's called Heaven, Not Just an Eternal Day Off. Which I think is helpful because sometimes we think of that. What's the best thing we can imagine? A day off. Because man, because we're working so hard, we just want to relax. But in heaven, that won't be the issue. We won't have our boss on our back or all these things we have to do. We will be free. We will be at peace. And we will be able to do all the things that we enjoy fully to the glory of God. So think about this for a moment. There'll be some of us, there'll be some of us that in heaven get to keep doing the thing that we're doing now for all of eternity. For example, if, if you were, uh, say, a Christian theoretical physicist, you just love digging into the deepest physical realities of the world that God made, you love doing proofs and equations and just delving deeply into these mysteries of God, you will be able to do that for as long as you want in heaven and you won't, ha won't have to worry about publishing or tenure or teaching undergrads who don't care about physics. All of those things that, you know, make that not fun, you'll, you'll be able to do it purely. Everything that you enjoy. If you enjoy doing it, you will be able to continue. For some of us, though, it means we won't have to do the things that we're doing anymore at all. Because uh, some of us have jobs that we're just working because we need uh, to pay the bills. We need to put food on the table and that's, praise God, for those jobs. But if we had a choice, we would not keep doing that. We will have that choice in heaven. We, we can spend 30 years learning to be a professional cook so that we can explore all of the tastes, sensations, all of the ingredients of the world. We can feed people over and over again. And in the midst of that, everyone will be glorifying Jesus. Oh, this tastes so good. This is fantastic. I never had this on earth. It, it'd, be, it'll be great. It'll be uh, an expanding, a magnifying of the glory of God. See, if you think about our human culture right now, we are severely limited. We're limited in lots of ways. Our, our own conflict between each other, um, our physical bodies. There, there are uh, geniuses that have not been able to build on their ideas because they've died. Da Vinci drew a picture of a helicopter, died way before that would happen. Uh, so many people have been limited. So much of civilization is limited. Imagine what we will do technologically, artistically, creatively, when we are able to flourish in the way that God intended. In fact, heaven will be a perfect expression of this verse. This verse applies to us now, but it will be perfectly expressed in heaven. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is what we will do. It will be wondrous. It will be fantastic. And our joy will be full because we are glorifying God the whole time. So, 
Heaven will not be boring. Far from it. But hear me, the physicality and the creativity of heaven is not even the best part. That there are better realities, better things in heaven. Let's get to them. Here's number three. The third thing that we see that definitely will be there in heaven is life. Life. Here's Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, something that's good to note is that that word life there does not just mean uh, organic life. Bios is the Greek word for just like us living, physical matter living. Uh, that word there is zoe, which is eternal life. And so you see here is, a, is an indication that the life that we have in heaven is of a greater kind of life. The other thing I think that's really, uh, really beautiful, actually, is the presence of the tree of life. It's this beautiful bookend for the whole story of humanity because the tree of life was there at the beginning. Right? There was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we were, they were commanded not to eat from. They did eat from it. They sinned. And what God did in light of that is he then barred, he blocked our way to the tree of life. We see this in Genesis 3.24. Uh, it says, He, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. So, I'm not sure about you, but I thought to myself, in many ways, uh, all that human beings have been trying to do, at least a big part of what we've been trying to do, is to get back to that tree. Think of, I mean, the myths and legends of the fountain of youth, of the, the tree of life. There's stories of conquistadors going into South America looking for this tree of life, trying to, trying to extend their life. And today we do it in just a more sophisticated way. We have beauty products, plastic surgery, medical treatments, all designed to extend our life here on earth, keep us young. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but, but have you ever thought about whether an unending supply of this life on this earth would actually be a blessing or would it be a curse? Because God, he blocked our way to that tree for a reason. I mean, he, he, he says it there. He says that he does not want, he did not want humanity to live forever in our sin. That would not be good for us. That would not be a blessing. What we need is not just more bios, not just more life like we have here. What we need is a new kind of life, a transformed life, Zoe, eternal life. And in fact, that's, that's what we get. I mean, that's what we find here in the garden. We find a life free from disease, free from pain, free from decay, free from moral corruption. All of these things are ours already in Christ. That's the amazing life that we have been given. In fact, Jesus made very clear that this is what he brought to the table. Uh, here's two verses, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That word is zoe, eternal life. John eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Same word. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So we actually already have this life, but we aren't experiencing it fully. In heaven, the, the zoe, the eternality of our spiritual life will be combined with physical life. So listen, it's, it's not like we get to heaven and they give us a water bottle. 
like a Contigo water bottle and say, okay, every day, just make sure you go to the river of life and then drink it because then, you know, you'll, things will keep going. It'll be great. It's, that's not the idea. It's not that it's a source for us. The idea is it's a picture of what we already have and a constant reminder of those whose name is written in the book of life. We have that life. We experience it partially now, praise God, that we're alive spiritually. We will experience it fully in heaven. And, and there's a couple of implications for us in that. The first is that we should be careful not to get too attached to this life because there's a danger in us loving certain aspects of this life and getting caught up in this life. The truth is that this life pales in comparison to the life to come. The second implication is that all of the pleasures of heaven, all of the life of heaven is connected to the source of that life who is Jesus. I mean, the, the water flows from the throne of Christ. It's a reminder that he is the source of all genuine life on earth and in heaven. And so that, should, that brings us to our, the last thing we see. The, the, the question, uh, actually, I'm going to shift it a bit. The question that we've been asking is what will be in heaven? For this last one, we should shift it to who will be in heaven? Who will be in heaven? And of course, the answer is Jesus. Jesus will be there in heaven. Look at Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, I don't think this is symbolic. I mean, the, the part on the foreheads, I think maybe B, it's kind of marking us as, as children of God. But this idea of us meeting Jesus face to face, I think that's going to happen. We're going we're to meet him. We're going to stare into his eyes. We see that in other parts of, of the New Testament, talking about seeing now in a mirror dimly, then face to face. It's going to be amazing. Not just because we finally get to see what Jesus looks like and we get to see how wrong all the paintings were, all the children's Bibles, you know, depicting him. It's not just that we're going to put a face to a name. There's so much more because what it signifies is a fulfillment of some of the deepest longings of humanity. I mean, if you think about what human beings um, long for, it, it's, it's being able to stare into the origin of our existence. And for Christians, we know that that origin is not a what, it's a who. And we will have the opportunity of staring into Jesus, our creator, that's, that's what um, Moses wanted. Remember Moses' request to God? God, who he'd been talking to, he said, Lord, let me see your glory. And, and God's response was, you can't. Um, no man can see my face and live because uh, God is holy and perfect and pure and we are, we are not, at least not before Jesus. But when we step into heaven, will be glorified, will be able to be in his presence, stare Jesus in the face, not just as our creator, but also as our savior. The one who gave everything for us to, to be there. Now, if you're wondering what this will be like, what this will feel like, God in his, um, his wisdom has given us a picture of, of what this will be like, this relationship we have with Jesus, and he's, he's given it to us all around us. Because it's very clear in in the Bible, that marriage is partly there because it gives us a picture of God's love for the church, of Jesus' love for the church. That's the instruction we get in Ephesians 5. 
that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, then in fact, that's what this is all about. Because in the picture of marriage, though it is flawed, because we're flawed people, though it doesn't always last, when it's done well, when it perseveres, it does give us a beautiful picture of gracious, sacrificial love. If you've been married for any length of time, you know this to be true. No offense, newlyweds, but the, the real love uh, is the love that stands the test of time. And so it's after multiple decades, it's after difficult times, it's after heartache and turmoil that a husband and wife really understand the depth of what love is and how they sacrifice for each other, how they care for each other, how they forgive each other. And that picture of love is one that we see in the nature of God's love for us. I was reminded of this uh, this week. I went for a visit at uh, Rich and Deanne Simmons' uh, house. Uh, you may know that Rich has been uh, suffering with cancer for a while now. Uh, he was in hospital for six weeks. He got a very aggressive tumor in his throat and was able to come home just this week. Uh, they got a hospital bed all set up. He's all hooked up to, to machines, but, but thankfully they were hoping he'd be able to come home and, and be with his family. And that means that his wife Deanne is caring for him 24-7. And so I, I went and I visited with Rich, uh, talked with him. He has a trach tube in, so he writes out uh, what he wants to say. But I was asking him, how's it, how's it going, Rich? He said, his faith is strong. Praise God. He's not, not fearful, not worried. I asked him how it was going with everything that's going on. And he said, well, it, you know, it's tough. He said, but it's actually tougher for Deanne because Deanne is caring for him all the time. And, and he was right. As I was talking to him, she's on the phone with nurses coming in, fixing things. I said, boy, she's doing a lot. And he wrote down two words on his little pad. He just wrote down, she's amazing, period. Because he, he sees it. That's, that's where you see how much people care for you and love you. That's, that's the depth of real love. Now listen, we don't know when, but at some point in the future, Deanne and Rich are going to see each other in heaven. They're not going to be married, just so you know. That's just the way it is. But they are going to have that shared life experience. Imagine what that will be like to stare each other in the face and remember all that they went through all the good times, all the bad times, all the ways that they cared for each other and loved each other. And then think of the fact that that meeting pales in comparison to the meeting that each one of us will have with Jesus. Jesus who loved us more than anyone else on this earth. Jesus who sacrificed more than anyone else in our lives. Jesus who prayed more for us at the right hand of the Father. Jesus who sent his spirit to be with us Jesus who went away to prepare a place in heaven for us. Can I ask you, are you not excited to meet Jesus? Are you not eager to be able to, to look him in the eyes, to look at his hands, and to be there and simply, simply weep, simply say, say thank you, just talk with him? This is the most wondrous aspect of heaven. Because everything else... Frankly, you can get rid of all that other stuff. It's, it sounds great. It is great. All the physical parts, all the experiences, you get rid of all of that. If you have Jesus, you still have heaven. But if you lose Jesus, you lose everything. So praise God that the heaven that we have to look forward to is this wondrous reality with at its, at its center, the source of life itself, our Savior, our Redeemer. You can think of it this way. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we would have a mediocre time for all of eternity. His, his life, his resurrected life is a picture for us of the life he's given us. That he gave everything so that we would receive everything. So here's my final takeaway. One takeaway in light of all of this, sort of a brief picture of heaven, 
It's simply this. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That has great impact if we truly believe it and understand it. Because if our life is, is a struggle now, which it is for most of us, we can remind ourselves each day the best is yet to come. And that tells me who my God is. Because he created this, this glorious eternity and a way for me to get there in spite of my sin. That tells me that God is at work right now and that he's prepared the best thing I can imagine for all of eternity. So 10 years, 20 years of this, 50 years of this, it's a blink compared to what God has in store for us. But it's also good to have this in mind because for some of us, we may be enjoying life right now. And praise God if we are. Praise God if things are going well, you're enjoying the season of life. But listen, don't be fooled that you're living your best life now. Because you're, you're not. You're not. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived by the pleasures of this world because they always want us to believe that this is the best and that we should root ourselves here. We should make a home here in this earth. No. No, we have a place waiting for us. It's going to be more glorious and more wonderful than we can almost even imagine. And it's all a tribute to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the end of the beginning means the beginning of something far greater. Jesus promised that it would come to be and it will. May we, may our hope be filled, may our hearts be filled because of these truths and may it encourage us today. I'm gonna to pray that for us right now. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for this picture of heaven. What an encouraging vision you've given us. This, this city, sparkling, gleaming, so precious. Pointing to your preciousness, Lord Jesus. Pointing to the reality of this, this physical space that we will get to be in. Lord Jesus, I pray that this would be a great encouragement. Especially, Lord God, for those that are struggling here on this earth. I pray especially for those that are struggling with, with physical sickness and illness. God, I pray you'd bring healing. I pray for Rich, you'd bring healing into his life, Lord. Pray for comfort, Lord, for all of those struggling with the realities of this world. And I pray also, Lord, that you would help to guard our hearts. Help us, Lord, to not get caught up in the things of this world. Lord, that we may genuinely glorify you with the way that we live and seek to, to bring the good news of Christ to others who are lost in the false pleasures of this world. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be people of hope and truth. And I pray that you would indeed receive a great worship and glory from the way that we live, even the way that we die. And Lord, help us to anticipate that reality to come. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.